0: Yo, what's up, guys? It's Jonathan Bame here, and today is Sunday, the 30th of March, 2014, and we are here for a new and fresh edition of our Roundtable Discussion podcast. Every time we do this, we invite a different artist, or sometimes multiple artists, and we have them answer as many questions as possible that you guys submit directly in the Theory11 forums celebrating the release of Foundations 3 this past week. We are joined on this particular podcast by the one and only Jason England. Jason, are you there? Can you hear me right now? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? I can hear you beautifully. So Jason is a little bit under the weather, but he is uh, joining us regardless and powering through it. And our goal on this podcast is to get through as many questions that you guys submitted as we possibly can, provided a short amount of time. So we're going <laughs> to if it's okay with you, Jason, let's just get uh, get right into it. I think the best first question that I kind of wanted to use as a launching point, we just released Foundations 3, which is the third volume of the Foundations series. It has three, actually over three hours of instruction in it uh, for six different moves. This is the third edition of Foundations. Um, but just l- like zooming out a little bit, there's a question here by Sunny G Post number three. And he's talking about the difference of learning magics from videos like foundations versus how you probably learn, which is from books. So his question says I believe that you learn most, if not all, of your uh, art through books. Do you imagine your outcome would have been different if you grew up learning from videos like foundations versus uh, uh, DVDs? Uh,
1: well, the first part, the uh, first thing I should say is that it's basically true that I learned most everything I know through books as far as routines are concerned. Um, uh, Someone often showed them to me in person, but then I had to go buy the book to learn how to do them. Um, But as far as techniques are concerned, the raw techniques, um, it's not necessarily true that I learned um, all of it through books because I had two very early, uh, well, I had two DVD sets very early in my magic career. The first one was Richard Turner's, um, at that time it was two videotapes called The Cheat. They have now been um, combined onto a single DVD. Uh, And the other set that I had was the C40 uh, Gambling Protection Series, which was four videos at that time, and now we put those on three DVDs. Uh, I'll actually put them on two DVDs and then a third DVD of a bunch of extra stuff that nobody had ever seen before. Um, So as far as techniques go, I have no problem learning from video, never have. Uh, it's the routines that I think should come out of books um, just because that's it's easier to put forty routines uh, into a single book than it is to put forty routines onto, you know um, ten DVDs or eight DVDs or however many uh, that would take. It would take a lot for sure. Just um, um
0: this isn't mentioned as part of the question, but just to expand it a little bit further, this talks about the difference in learning from books and videos. But the third ingredient that I know, just based on your neighbors, uh, you've learned a lot from is in person, you know, being around Steve Forty, being around uh, these people in person. What have you learned from people like in the present, uh, you know, to, in person that you were, would never have been able to learn from just books alone? You know,
1: I can't really answer that with like any examples necessarily. I mean, I know there are some things that some that people have shown me for sure, but I can't really put my finger on what it is because why I have had that personal one-on-one instruction, it actually came pretty late in my uh, development as a, as a magician because although Steve and I have been dear friends for about uh, seven years now, something like that, I didn't actually meet him until about 2003. So I was already 13 years um, into magic um, and doing most of the things that I do now long before I ever met him in person. Now, the stuff he's shown me since I've met him uh, is unbelievable, and there are things that I've never shared with anybody that he's shown me uh, except my uh, absolute closest friends, stuff that's never appeared on videotape anywhere and may never appear on videotape anywhere so it's a massive amount of information, but it, but it came after I had a pretty solid grounding in classic card magic books and classic gambling technique from these video series and books and stuff that I'd read. Um, so, you know, I think all three of them are important. It just depends on what your goals are. Uh, the last part of that question, by the way, it says, uh, he says, for example, you wouldn't have developed your own handling for some loops. That part is absolutely true, uh, because, for instance... I developed a handling of a move called the rub Vanish, or the rub Vanish, if you prefer, um, and I developed a handling of the move that's different from any way that it had ever appeared in print before because I had only heard the move described to me over the phone. And when it was described to me over the phone, I had to picture it in my own mind, and so I, I did what I thought the person describing it to me over the phone was saying. It turns out I was doing it... Um, completely different and so that's one of the things that books can do for you is it, it plants this image in your head and you work towards improving that image but if that image is slightly off um, you get the benefit of developing your own version of it
0: yeah and the, and the flip well, side of that is the flip side of that is if the image of your head um, uh, sucks and, and you are right. advancing towards a Imperfect ideal, and versus seeing something executed, you know, flawlessly, and watching foundation, seeing how you know technically a, a you know someone that's experienced doing it, it's supposed to look, can give you that you know provides that image for you. Sure, right, and that's and that's why I think it's okay to learn technique from uh, from a
1: visual reference like um, like a video or a book or a download. Um, when it comes to the creative, because those are just the building blocks, you know, in my head, those are just the pieces of the puzzle. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're going for routines and ideas, that's where you have a little bit more creative freedom. And that's where I think it's okay to not have a perfect model that you're trying to emulate. Um, you know, uh, if if we were trying to make a bunch of painters instead of a bunch of card magicians, you um, Which would you rather have happen to you? Would you rather have someone teach you how to paint and then send you off to paint portraits? Or would you rather we all just sat around and painted dozens and dozens and dozens of copies of the Mona Lisa? Um, You know, we may produce some exact replicas of it, but we would never advance past that if all we did was just copy what's right in front of us. So I think uh, some of the time it's okay to copy. And some of the time uh, it's important, in fact, critical not to copy uh, and to make sure that your brain isn't distracted by having a model in your head that you're painting towards or creating towards with a deck of cards or what have you. Right. So. But
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but the goal that we have is with foundations as a resource is that people see these f- fundamentals, well, foundational moves executed, you know, well and properly so that they learn them you know they can be learn them faster but that isn't to say that we are promoting foundations as the be-all and end-all instruction on these moves we just this, right. is, this is a great place to get started to learn the basics the foundational moves the fundamentals of these moves and that you know that can then complement other things but if you're if you're learning these things for the first time it is massively uh helpful to propel yourself forward to see how it's supposed to look as you know it is written and has someone that's you know as years and years of experience doing it it's like you mentioned in i think our previous podcast it's like saying if you're taking guitar lessons from Jimi hendrix it's gonna get you better faster if you have experience with someone uh that is very adept at something that can help you avoid the pitfalls that you would otherwise have and you know show you the ropes basically
1: sure no i think it's i think it's definitely helpful to see the moves done well. um, But, you know, I I certainly don't put myself out there and say, hey, this is the only way to do a top card cover pass, for instance. Because, you know, I do it differently than a lot of people. I have slightly different fingering um, positions and slightly different uh, pressures and things of that nature. It works really well for me. But I think the the bigger picture there is that someone, if, if they've read about a top card cover pass and they're having trouble imagining what that would look like, then they could watch me do it and go, "Oh, okay, I get it. That's what that's supposed to look like." Now, how how should I go about uh, getting uh, to that same spot? Well, I'll try what Jason says, and if that doesn't work for you, then it's okay to alter it. Um, you know, like I said, I don't have uh, I don't have the answers, uh, but I just have the answers for me. So, uh, so yeah, that's the goal to give you a nice model to work towards. And, Again, I think that's fine with raw technique. Uh, I would be cautious with it when it comes to actual routines, which is why I don't put a lot of routines into print Um, or a lot of routines on video. I prefer to put those in print. You know, most of the routines I've written up, I have put in written lecture notes. I haven't necessarily put them on video. I've uh, only done a couple of them on video from time to time.
0: Um, Backtracking a little bit, post number 10 by Blaziken, he's in uh, Quebec, Canada. What attracted you to card gambling and gambling techniques in the first place?
1: What basically happened was I saw Triumph in uh, at a very early magic age. I was actually 19 years old or 20 years old, something like that. But I was just brand new to magic. So at a young magic age, I saw Triumph done by uh, a magician behind a magic counter in Memphis, Tennessee. And it absolutely blew me away. And he sold me the book that it's in, Stars of Magic. And so I started reading. I read Stars of Magic recover, loved it. I think it's a fantastic book. And I started getting very interested in Di Vernon um, because he created this fantastic trick that I liked. And in reading the other Vernon books, um, I discovered that he was very um, fond of gambling and cheating techniques. So I got to gambling and cheating techniques through my reading of the Vernon material. Because at that point in time in my magic book, uh, you know development if if it was good enough for Di Vernon, it was good enough for me. And so that's how I got there. And then I asked around and I asked some people, you know, hey, Vernon says gambling is where it's at. So how do I learn these techniques? And they said, well, these are the sources that you need to take a look at. And so I started researching and tracking down those sources. So that's how I got into it. is it came through magic, but it came from uh, Vernon.
0: You have a relatively enormous library of books that uh, you're probably near right now in magic today. Are you still fooled by things? There's a post number 13 Luis Vega. So when was the last time you got you were fooled either by gambling moves or magic or anything like that? Is that still a common occurrence or is it rare now that you've you know you've, you're so well read in magic techniques and methodology that it's a rare experience? Uh, well, it, uh, it happens all the time.
1: Um, I think the difference these days is that, um, you know, when I first got into magic, I've been into magic two years, three years, five years, whatever. If something fooled me, it might have fooled me for a long time. And these days, I'm still fooled by things, but I have a larger skill set to draw upon. And so a lot of times, something that fools me in the moment, right when I see it, if you give me two minutes to think about it, I will hit upon the correct solution. But that doesn't mean I wasn't fooled. That doesn't mean I didn't feel that sort of, you know, that punch to the gut feeling that you all get when you see something that blows you away. Trust me, I still get that feeling. Um, The only difference is is that now I'm able to catch up a little bit quicker um, than I used to be able to. So, um, the, so it says here, um, when was the, I guess what, he's supposed to, what he meant to write was, when was the last time you got fooled? I'll tell you when it was. It was yesterday. Um, or late last night, actually, maybe early this morning. I watched a video that Steve Forty uh, had his wife film of him doing something with a dick, uh, deck of cards. And he did this. Um, uh, she filmed it with her iPhone, and he sent it to me. And it fooled me. And it, it got me for a second. And I was like, wow, I have no idea what just happened. I watched it again. It fooled me the second time. I still didn't know exactly how he had done it. Uh, You know, 10 minutes later, I had figured out how he did it and now I can do it too. But uh, I still got fooled and I still got that feeling, that instantaneous feeling of what just happened. So it happens all the time. Um, And most of the time it's magic, but occasionally it can be gambling moves.
0: There's a lot of questions submitted uh, about practice techniques and how do you practice these sorts of moves? How do you personally practice these sorts of moves? But I think a lot of uh, members were asking kind of your recommendations for how to practice these sorts of moves. Can you delve into that? Specifically the post number I was looking at was 15, but a lot of members' uh, questions centered around practice techniques. So can you actually break that into two things? How how do you practice today? Like what is your practice regimen? And what is your recommended regimen for people that are just learning these sorts of things for the first time? Um, well, I think the most important thing is that
1: you have a goal in mind, and um, that goal can be very, very simple and broad, or it can be very narrow and focused, um, and in the early days, my goal was to, uh, to just practice the things I liked, because I wasn't a performer, um, uh, in fact, I didn't perform even informally. I rarely showed people uh, things with the deck of cards. I was only practicing for me. So I only had me to make happy. Um, and so my goal was to just practice the stuff that I liked. And I think that's fine in the early days. If, uh, if you have no aspirations of being a performer, then uh, you don't have to perform or you don't have to practice the things that performers have to practice. Um, but if you do want to be a performer or if you do occasionally get asked to show things, Uh, to your friends or family or whatever, then it is important that you practice um, with those goals in mind. So the first thing is have a goal. Um, The second thing is, um, you know, kind of know who you are. If you're hilarious, then you can practice things that a Bill Malone or a David Williamson could get away with that I could never get away with. Uh, if you're not funny at all, you would look silly trying to practice things like card from mouth that Bill Malone does, or uh, some sort of slapstick uh, magic routine like the stuff that Williamson's famous for. So kind of know who you are and what your strengths are. Um, the other thing I would say is to have a combination of uh, sort of regimented formal practice And informal practice. So I informally practice when I'm checking my email, sitting in front of my computer. Here in my office, I have a small close-up pad. not very big at all, maybe, um, you know, one foot square, something like that. And in fact, I think it's a piece from an old close-up pad that I just cut out. Um, And I sit here and I practice things while I'm reading emails or if I'm watching a video or something like that. I've got a, a couple of decks of cards that sit here and, you know, I'll shuffle or I'll I uh, deal some bottoms or what have you. Um, but that's not formal regimen because that's just me keeping my hands moving. So for the formal practice that I do, um, I do anywhere from a half hour a day would be something on the short end up to about two hours a day. I don't practice much more than that these days. I did in the early days, but uh, not so much anymore. But I will actually get up and go into the other room where I have a full-size poker table. Uh, It's a nine-seat poker table that came out of a casino here in Las Vegas. Uh, It actually came out of Binion's. And I sit at that poker table, and I practice things from riffle stacking to false deals to false cuts to – I even practice things that a lot of people think you don't have to practice, like ribbon spreads. And a lot of people, uh, once they've got a ribbon spread, a deck of cards, they think, okay, got that solved, on to the next thing. I still practice ribbon spreads to this day because I like to make them precise, uh, and I also practice a lot of um, excuse me, a lot of uh, ribbon spread techniques where I'm hiding cards in the ribbon spread, or I'm trying to control cards um, through certain ribbon spread hideout techniques. So I practice stuff like that, even though you would think that that's a fairly simple technique that you don't need to practice. I still practice it from time to time.
0: When, so um, when you are practicing these moves, are you in front of a mirror? How do you judge if you're, you know, how do you gauge success as you're practice like progress? Are you recording them, or are you watching a mirror, or
1: I, I do a little bit of I do a little bit of everything. Um, at first, I look at new moves in a mirror just so I can get a rough idea of what they look like. Um, you know, the mirror is a wonderful tool if you use it properly, but if you're not careful with it, it can uh, cause you problems. So uh, I do use a mirror in the early days. Um, and I look at things from a couple of different angles, but then I try to get away from the mirror. Um, after I've used it to iron out some, you know, uh, some finger position details or some angle details, I'll put the mirror aside and I just practice for a couple of weeks without it on the move. And then I'll double check with the mirror from time to time. I'll put it up and uh, check on things and look at things and make sure I'm going in the right direction. And then uh, the ultimate test, though, eventually is, since you can't really watch yourself live, the best that we can get is to get a camera out and film things. And I'll do that. I'll get a camera out and turn it on. It doesn't have to be a fantastic camera, but I'll get my small uh, point-and-shoot camera out, and I put it on a little Gorilla Pod. And I attach it to the edge of the table and I'll film something and take a look at it from there.
0: Yeah. And I think nowadays it, it, it's so, you know, it used to be like, oh, to get a video camera, you got to own a video camera Now, you know, it was just a, an iPhone, you can, you're recording yep. in 1080p or 720p and you're seeing it not exactly as the human eye would, but you can see it from multiple angles. You can watch it back as many times as you want. Um, and that's something that most people have in their pockets at all times. So it, it, there's, there's yep. more means to practice and watch, engage your own progress than there ever has been.
1: Yep, and I do, I do it all the time. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I do it every day. I certainly don't do it every day. But about once a week, I want to know what something looks like from that side of the table. And, uh, so I'll ask my brother to, uh, Hey, you know, come in here, hold this camera. I'm going to do something, you know, hold the camera right there. Let me take a look at it. And he'll stand there for a second and hold the camera or I'll set the camera up and do it myself if nobody else is around. And I use it to check my progress all the time. I think it's a, I think it's a great idea and a, and a great tool. The last, um,
0: um, last thing I was actually mention about the practice thing, because you mentioned your brother in the room, um, Obviously, I mean, it was very helpful to me when I was growing up. There was no other magicians around me, but I did have, you know, trusted friends that I would show tricks to as I was learning them or I would show techniques to. And I trusted them enough where, you know, I could show them something, and if I totally botched it and screwed it up, it really wasn't a big deal. They were already aware that you know I'm not a real sorcerer, and I'm not you know I was still learning, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a horrific experience. But it was it was very helpful to me to have someone that I could show things to that would give me constructive criticism. So is that kind of possibly a third element to practice techniques, in front, including mirrors and um, video, having someone that you can show things to, especially if magic-wise. As you're learning it,
1: absolutely. In fact, I uh, um, I think that it's ex- extremely helpful once you have the basic actions of uh, of an effect down, and you can get through it from start to finish. I think it's extremely helpful to uh, to have a place where you can go and perform and be bad if you have to be bad, um, because some routines are going to require that you. Um, fail a couple of times as you're attempting them so that you can iron out uh, some difficulties, especially tricks that require timing or serious misdirection. You're going to screw those up.
0: Yes. And you need
1: a place where you can go out and screw things up. Um, And so um, what I used to do, and I don't do this anymore because I'm past this stage really, um, but I used to perform in pool halls all the time. I used to love to shoot pool. And now I have my own pool table and I don't have to go out to pool halls, but I used to go out. After work, I'd go hang out in the pool hall, and uh, all I did was uh, shoot pool for an hour, and then I'd sit down at a table and get a deck of cards out. And because I knew the waitresses and the other people that shot pool in the pool hall, um, is they would come over and sit down, and they'd say, so what's new? And that was my invitation to show them something. They Most of them had seen me do a million tricks, but it gave me a platform. It gave me a place where I could experiment, and it gave me a place where um, because i had already shown them all my A material, um, I had a little bit of respect built up in their, in their minds already. So they were patient and they were, um, they were good audiences. They were my friends, but they didn't know anything about magic, um, except what I had shown them, uh, you know, or what they had seen me do already. And so it was a really good safe environment for me to perform in front of non-magicians that, um, that I could often, often I would preface it with, "Hey, this is something new I'm working on. It's not a hundred percent. Maybe you could tell me what you think." And if it blew them out of their chairs, then I knew I really had something. If they just kind of stared at it and went, "Nah, it's pretty good," but I've seen you do better, then I knew I had to keep working. So I think it's critical to have a place like that with good people that you can perform for that don't that uh, aren't necessarily other magicians, but that uh, but that want to see you succeed.
0: I want to take there's a few quick questions here I wanted to get to. Um, Is there a specific move or moves uh, asked Jeremiah Dean in Arizona uh, that took you the longest to master or to get to this, to a level of proficiency with? What are some of the most difficult moves that you regularly execute?
1: Uh, Without question, I would put the bottom deal up there. Um, The bottom deal and probably the zero shuffle are two that I, think are unbelievably difficult, uh, not necessarily for um, the same reason. Um, I think the bottom deal is the uh, uh, the move that requires the most uh, practice, the false deal, I'm sorry, the false deal that requires the most practice to uh, to stay in stroke on it so that it's just you know just looks flawless. And the zero shuffle is visually one of the most difficult moves to uh, to master. Um, If you're showing a zero shuffle to someone that doesn't know what a zero shuffle is, you can do a a bad one and it'll still go past them. But uh, if you're doing a zero shuffle in front of people that know the concept of a zero shuffle, then I think it's one of the most difficult things you can possibly do to get them to go, hey, I'm not sure about that one. That looked great. You know, maybe that was a real shuffle. Maybe that was a zero. I just couldn't tell. You know, that is uh, very, very difficult uh, to achieve.
0: Um, This is a two-phase question by student of Artifice, post number twenty. What is a magic book and a non-magic book that you have read or reread recently that you would recommend for inspiration? Um, A
1: magic book that I read recently. Well, I've read a couple. I've read the uh, Cavendy books uh, that came out last year, back in August. Uh, I read both of the Cavendy books. I thought they were fantastic. Uh, They're not card magic necessarily, but I thought they were fantastic. Um, I am currently reading through uh, the Hofsinger books that were put out by Conjuring Arts and um, Hermetic Press. I'm currently reading those. I've got the new Steve Mayhew book um, that was written by John Lovick, uh, which is all card magic for the most part. Um, There is a $100 bill routine in the book as well, but mostly it's all card magic. As far as a non-magic book that I've read recently, um, I read them all the time, but um, let's just walk over here to my... I've got a little kind of current reading shelf here, stuff that I've been looking at. Uh, let's see, what is a recent non-magic book? Um, well, there's a book that I read not too long ago that I thought was, uh, was great. It actually came out a few years ago, but I just read it uh, about a year ago. It came out in 2009, and it was called The Art of Making Money. And it sounds like a business book, but it's not. It was a a book about a master counterfeiter, a guy that was the best counterfeiter pretty much that the U.S. Secret Service has ever run up against. So The Art of Making Money, the story of a master counterfeiter, uh, written by a guy named Jason Kirsten. Uh, He is not the counterfeiter, but uh, he's the reporter that kind of tracked this guy down. So that's something I read recently. Um, And I've got a couple of other books up here. Uh, There was a book called The Art of Strategy by um, a a couple of Dixit, D-I-X-I-T, and Nailbuff, N-A-L-E-B-U-F-F, which is about game theory that I enjoyed very much. I didn't understand all of it, but I enjoyed reading it a lot. And uh, probably the most recent book that I've read that I got a kick out of was a book called You Are Not So Smart by David McRaney, um, which is a bunch of little short pieces on uh, mistakes that we kind of make in our everyday lives. Well, There's, uh, there's some non-magic yeah, books that I've uh,
0: that's a good list. read there's, recently. Yeah, for, for other magic books, I don't know if everyone that's listening to this is aware of it. There's actually a free video on Theory 11 that's called What to Read that we filmed yep. with Jason a year two years ago that is not, uh, you know, exhausted, but it is a good starting place for what magic books to read and digest if you're just starting or you're, you know, a, a pretty much at any stage of magic development, you'll get something out of this stuff. But check that out. It's free. It's on Theory11. Search for what to read. Um, there's a few more questions I want to get to. I know we've got to run in a second, but speaking about Foundations 3 specifically, you've done this in all of the Foundations series from the start, which is talking about magic history. Usually before any video in the Foundation City uh, series starts, you first explain the history of the technique, where it was first published, you know, notable variations of it, all these sorts of things that you dive into. Um, there's a post here from, uh, Khan TW and number 29 from Germany, and he's basically saying, why do you do that? Why is that important? Um, why do you feel like that's a critical part of the learning process for people to understand, uh, the roots and the history of each of these moves? Do you think, is that just from the perspective of, Honoring the people that have published in the past or who created it in the case of Zara Shuffle uh, or is or or do you believe that? There's a bigger purpose to understanding the history um, and and using that as a you know knowledge to some greater effect
1: Well, it's a little bit of everything Um, I do think it's important to acknowledge the people whose ideas we're using Um, you know, I mean I've been around the world three or four times because of a bunch of stuff I didn't invent, you know, uh, that someone taught me or that I taught myself out of a book. So, you know, things like bottom deals and center deals and second deals and false shuffles and passes and shifts and double lifts, um, none of that stuff belongs to me. And yet I've been around the world three or four times basically off the strength of those techniques. And so I feel compelled to give thanks to the people that invented that stuff when i can obviously we can't track down the first guy that ever uh did a second deal or a bottom deal maybe but we can track down the first guy that ever did a top card cover pass because we know who invented it uh we you know it's it's in print and nobody had ever put it in print before him same thing with certain uh certain other moves where we can say hey this is traceable to a specific person at a specific point in time um, at least, you know, as far as some actual techniques are concerned. Um, and so I think it's important to give back and to, uh, uh, to look to history for that reason. But there are other reasons. That's just sort of my personal reason is I feel compelled to give back by, by you know, shining a light on these inventors throughout history. Uh, the other reasons are is it helps you understand the evolution of certain techniques and Within that understanding can come um, better clarity and possibly better technique. If you know why somebody did something, it may help you when you're learning it. For instance, if you find out that a particular person used a particular uh, finger position on a deck of cards because he always used brand new cards, and you think to yourself, well, I never use brand new cards. My cards always are... Uh, worn-out, sticky deck of cards that I've had for five years, well, then you may be able to discard some of his instruction because his instruction uh, may depend on a brand-new deck, and you never have a brand-new deck. So by understanding that sort of stuff to a a greater detail, you can often make more informed decisions. Um, And I think some of that stuff becomes important when you start looking at a bottom deal like Erdnice. He had a very odd fingering position uh, with his left hand, you know, the left forefinger stretched up at the upper left corner, and his uh, his um, hand took on a very claw-like appearance. And you look at that, and if you don't dig into the history behind that or think about why he did that, you might just ignore it and go, well, that's weird, I'm going to do something else. But if you look at it and you understand it and you start thinking about why he did it, you might be able to uh, improve your own technique. I personally think he did it because he had to, um, for due to the size of his hands, and the quality of the cards that he was using uh, at the time. Um, the uh, The absolute best cards from his day are just as good as the best cards that we have today. But the the average deck of cards in 1902 might not have might not have been as good as the average deck of cards that we have these days. And so I think he had that strange grip because he needed that strange grip for control purposes and if you've never thought about that then you couldn't possibly um, be incorporating that information into your own uh, experiments and your own uh, techniques. So that's another reason I'm very interested in the history is because at, at the end of the day it helps me make decisions.
0: Um, well, last one. So I hope that answers the question. No, for sure. Last but not least, here I wanted to talk specifically about Foundations three and the moves in it. I'll, I mean, the, the moves in Foundations three, the third volume here. It's the top card cover pass, the tabled Pharaoh shuffle, Herman pass, the false overhand shuffle, single cards, single card straddle pass, and you know what we labeled the dead cut um, about crimped cards and et cetera. What um, you know, overall reflections on the, the the variety of moves that are in this specific volume. I mean, how difficult are these moves? How practical are these moves? What are some of your favorites? Um, you know, any reflections on this specific collection of content?
1: Well, JBS you know, you know, we never set out from the very beginning to make DVDs. That was not the goal. When you and I first started talking in 2008, um, it was just, hey. Um, is there something you would like to teach? And I thought about it and I said yes. And I believe that we began with like the strike second deal, I think is the first thing we ever put out. Yes. And then after, you know, a year or so went by, we had enough for a DVD. And then after another couple of years, we had enough for a second DVD, and now here is the third D V D. Um so if we could rewind our lives and go back to two thousand and eight I probably would have started um, with a, a bigger master plan in mind, because some of these moves—they're like they're all over the map. You know, you've got passes and shuffles, and um, you've got overhand stuff, which is fairly simple, mixed in with cable farrow stuff, which is unimaginably difficult. You know, it's just like it looks like there's no rhyme or reason, and that's because there is no rhyme or reason. Uh, you know, we never we never set out to do this from the beginning. Um, but in looking over, that, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it looks sort of haphazard because these are collections of individual moves that were never designed necessarily to go together. But the good thing about it is that you, um, you get a wide spectrum of technique. So overhand shuffles, fairly simple, uh, things that could be mastered in a few months. The dead-cut technique, fairly simple, things that could be mastered in a few months. Top card cover pass, that's not as easy. That's going to take you a lot more time. Table-farrow shuffle, much more difficult. It's going to take you years to get that down. And then you've got things like the Herman pass and the single-card shuttle pass that kind of fall in the middle. So the fact that there um, doesn't appear to be any rhyme or reason to why these techniques are gathered together uh, it has some good points and it has some bad points, but um, I think the good points far outweigh the bad. Uh, the bad points are really more organizational than anything else. So I look at this and I'm happy with uh, I'm happy with the instruction on all of these. Um, you know, uh, you know me, I would never claim that these are the final word on any uh, of these individual techniques. Um, I think that these are great starting points for people that want to uh, research these moves and. Uh, being me, I always give you more, um, resources that you can go dig around in and find other people's techniques. I believe that that's critical. So if you want to learn the, you know, if you want to learn the Herman Pass, please don't just look at Foundations 3, uh, much as I would love to have you buy a copy of it. Um, that's only, it's only the beginning. You need to, you get a copy of this, but also, um, uh, Dig into the resources that I give you in the actual Harmon Pass video, and you'll find other sources for it where you should go and read them, or watch them, or whatever. Track it down and incorporate all of that information into your learning. And that goes for any of these techniques on foundations one, two, or three. So. Um, yeah, I'm looking back over, and I, I'm very pleased with it. Uh, I'm very happy with what we've
0: accomplished on all three of these uh, series. It's a lot of content. I mean, this this volume alone is three and a half hours. So it might be a little bit over that. Yeah, I, yeah, I think they were all over three hours, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, basically. So, you know, we're coming yeah, up on yeah. – yeah, you talked about about you know,
1: ten hours of instruction
0: on these three DVDs. Yeah, you talked about you know our rhyme and reason of when we have put one of these out. We've put one of these out when we can't go farther without you know not being able to fit more content on a DVD without right. compressing it heavily, so the quality's less. Um yep. But I think you know as we've gone through this is this is by far you know one of my favorite ones yet. It has a ton of content on it. I think there's a good breadth of content from easy stuff. Where you can learn it, and you know a few weeks of practice to things that'll take you years of practice. I kind of like that it has that that range on it. So it's not all things that are just like impossible. Like, yep, everything on here sure. you're gonna have to dig into for five years and then come back to us. Yeah, it's a good. Yeah,
1: you know, no, it's something that I think they can watch for a long time. You know, the first things that
0: if you if you've never picked up
1: a deck of cards in your life, this may not be the DVD for you. But assuming you are um, past the beginning stage and you pick up Foundations three. Um, you'll be using the overhand shuffle stuff immediately. You'll be using the dead cut techniques immediately. The single card saddle pass will come a little bit later, and then the Herman pass, and then the top card cover pass, and you know, the table pharaoh shuffle I put on there just because I, I I am enamored with the technique and I use it from time to time. But I'll be the first to tell you that it's un- unbelievably difficult to be consistent at. Um, so I think it's a good DVD that you can keep returning to over and over. In fact, I think all the Foundation's DVDs are like that. You know, on the very first one, we had the Sinner deal on the very first foundation DVD. So that's a move that you're not gonna master in a month, for sure. That's a a technique that you'll have to return to over and over again for years. And so the DVD will hold up, I think, over time. If you bought it early in your magic career, you'll learn some of the easier things off of them, and then as the years go by, and the months go by, and as you continue to practice, you'll be able to put the DVD back in your DVD player, your computer, or whatever, whatever the technology is uh, down the road, and you'll be able to watch it over again with a brand new set of eyes and a brand new set of information in your brain. And maybe something that i said uh, that you'd seen years ago won't necessarily mean anything to you back then. And then all of a sudden it's going to click in your head. And you're going to go, oh, wow, that's what he was talking about. Let me see if I can pull it off now. So I think they'll hold up over time for a lot of people. At least that's my hope.
0: So um, uh, I'm trying to see if there's any final questions here we can get to before we... <laughs> have to run but I think we got to a lot of them we tried to get through as many of these questions as we possibly could if you have not I wanted to uh I wanted to answer one
1: it's not one question it's actually a couple of people have brought it up that I saw on here uh it's in the very second uh post um from goateers uh and the questions are uh do you have a certain theory that you favor as to the identity of Erdnase? And there's a few other people, um, post number four has some, uh, similar questions. And I would like to say something about it very quickly. Was it because you? Because it was not me. Um, <laughs> but, um, so post number four has a question. Do you think Marty Demarest found Erdnase? Who do you think Erdnase was? So a couple of people have asked. Um, the answer to, this, to that question, do I think Marty Dimerist found Erdnase? Is absolutely not. um, Marty Demarest is a great guy. I've met him on three or four occasions now. i spent a whole weekend with him up uh, at his home, not his home, but his hometown in Montana uh, a couple of years ago at the first Erdnase convention, the Erdnaseum that they had. And I think he has done some fantastic research on his candidate, but I do not believe that his candidate is the right guy. And I have my reasons for believing that, and it would take another podcast to go into them. So I often joke that Marty has done wonderful research on the wrong guy, um, and uh, that's that's only partially a joke because his research is staggering. But I've told Marty this, that I don't think it's the right guy for a couple of reasons. Um, and the second part of the question is, who do you think Ernest was? Uh, well, I think he tells us exactly who he was. If you read the introduction of the book, um, he tells us that he was a gambler, not necessarily a cheater, but a gambler who gambled. Uh, he, he claims that he bucked the tiger voluntarily, which probably means he played pharaoh, although he could be just using that term loosely to mean that he gambled. Uh, but he probably played pharaoh, maybe some poker. He was cheated. He says he was cheated. And he also says that it kind of it kind of got to him. It stuck in his crawl a little bit. You know, he talks about it um, making impact, uh, making a bigger impact on his ego than on his pocketbook, really. Uh, he talks about his insufferable conceit being damaged. Um, so here's a guy. He, he gambled. He was cheated. It upset him. And so he set about learning everything he could learn about these cheating techniques. And uh, he learned so much that he eventually published his own book about them. But um, so what I think that means is is that we're looking for someone who may not have been a cheater at all, uh, may not have been much more than a casual gambler. Um, and may not have been a magician at all. Uh, And my good friend Richard Hatch points out that the language in Erdnase is exclusionary uh, of both groups, or to both groups. In other words, um, he sounds like an outsider when he talks about cheaters, and he sounds like an outsider when he talks about magicians also. You know, he says, magicians do this, and magicians do that. And I think magicians should, uh, should adopt some of my techniques. In other words, he's, he's talking as if he's not a magician, that that is a group he wishes would adopt his techniques. And he also talks about uh, advantage players doing these things and cheaters doing these things, and he thinks they're doing it the hard way and that they should do this instead. Also, he, his language is very exclusionary. So I think we're looking for someone that may not have been a card player, uh, apart from a casual card player at all, may not have been a magician at all, and was just a writer that somehow found himself writing uh, a book. Now, he clearly didn't do this over the course of six weeks. Uh, This is obviously something that he enjoyed and was interested in for a long time, Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his profession was gambler or magician. It could have been something completely different.
0: And the mystery remains. Exactly. Right. Incidentally,
1: I think Richard Hatch's candidate is probably the most interesting, a guy named Edwin Sumner uh, Edwin Summer and Sumner Andrews. Uh, the initials are right. He was in Chicago at the right time of year, um, and he vanished shortly thereafter. So I think that that uh, is a very promising candidate, as opposed to someone who lived thousands of miles from Chicago, And um, may have never even visited the city that we can tell.
0: Do you think this will ever be resolved?
1: No, probably not. Um, That's just my guess. I think that uh, a lot of the records that we would need to conclusively prove it one way or the other probably no longer exist. So my guess is it will never be resolved. But, uh, But that's okay.
0: Part of the story. Well, um, before we go, I just wanted to, you know, rehash one more time the the moves that are in Foundations 3. This is the top card cover pass, table fair shuffle, Herman pass, false overhand shuffle, single card straddle pass, and dead cut. This is a three-hour three-and-a-half-hour DVD that we just released. It's actually also available through our new streaming system where you can watch it all in your digital library and your Theory 11 account uh, streaming in high def. So you can log in anytime on any computer or iPad and watch uh, these videos referred back to them you know, years to come. So if you prefer to learn you know, and have all your videos on the computer on your Theory 11 account, you can Uh, watch Foundations 3, all of these individual videos streaming as well as the DVD and it is available now. So I would encourage everyone that is uh, listening to this to check that out and thank everyone who has participated in this podcast. We got an amazing spectrum of questions from people all over the world, from Canada to Germany to Uh, hong kong and all over the usa so thank you guys for submitting your questions and uh, last but not least and especially thanks to jason for taking your questions and taking the time out even though he's sick to review all this stuff with us tonight yep thanks for having me talk soon thanks again guys